ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. There's a slow-moving alien invasion happening in northern Queensland, making its way through the suburbs of the tropics. These aliens may be tiny, but this is no stealthy takeover. A supercolony of millions of bright yellow bodies is hard to miss. Anything unfortunate enough to get in their way can expect to be sprayed with formic acid, strong enough to burn or blind the receiver. It almost sounds like something out of a horror movie. But these little aliens are yellow crazy ants, one of the world's worst invasive species, known for devastating native wildlife and leaving entire ecosystems silent in their wake. We'd come home and there was always a dead smell everywhere. And it took me a while to realise it's, it's the ants that are, are just killing stuff. Today we'll visit tropical Queensland where communities are doing their utmost to keep these armies of tiny invaders at bay. I'm Alex Hyman and this is Australia Wide coming to you from Wadjuk country, Perth. But firstly, family members of people killed earlier this year in a Hunter Valley bus crash are calling for a federal bus task force like the one that operates in New South Wales. The tragedy claimed the lives of 10 people when the bus they were travelling in after a wedding rolled at a roundabout near Greta on the 11th of June. Our reporter Romy Stevens is in Newcastle and has been following this story. Romy, this was a tragedy that shocked the nation. Can you just outline what happened on the 11th of June. Yeah, Alex, I still vividly remember waking up on the Monday morning of that long weekend in June, hearing the news that this had happened. And it was just sending shockwaves through the community immediately. We heard reports that 10 people had been killed when the bus they were travelling in rolled at that roundabout. They were leaving a wedding in the Hunter Valley wine region when it happened. They were heading towards Singleton after the wedding and the tragedy struck and we then had it confirmed that those 10 people had died. Half of the victims involved in the crash were members of the Singleton Roosters AFL club. So it really shook that local community community extensively. There were also people involved that were from other states like Victoria and Queensland. So there were families and friends across the country that were impacted by this. But it also just the gravity of losing that many people in this one tragedy really hit hard for, for many people who have friends and families that ca- catch buses every single day. Now, how did the state government respond to this tragedy? Yeah, so in the wake of the tragedy, the New South Wales government took pretty quick steps to expand the scope of its bus industry task force. So that task force had already been set up before the incident, but it was initially looking at the consequences of bus privatisation and how to drive improvements to bus services. But It then immediately announced that they would expand the scope of that to examine bus safety management and seatbelts on buses. They were some of the immediate questions that started to arise after this tragedy. And it was announced early on that it would be chaired by John Lee. So he's a former CEO of the State Transit Authority and multiple private bus companies. He has years of experience in this industry and he's really been leading the charge along with the state government, including the Premier Chris Minns and the Transport Minister Joe Halen since then. 
What has the New South Wales Bus Industry Task Force pushed for and what change are they hoping to make? So since they expanded their scope, they've released a couple of reports. The main one when it came to safety was released in October and it made five recommendations which were all adopted by the government. Among those was ramping up the rollout of the New South Wales Rural and Regional Seatbelts Program, which promised to fit all compliant buses with seatbelts within 10 years. So they really want to fast track that and prioritise that to make sure that happens. Uh, Another one of those recommendations was to implement an immediate road safety campaign to promote compliance with seatbelt laws. I remember growing up, there were lots of campaigns about wearing seatbelts in cars, but you don't really see that as much in buses. And so many people involved in this were saying, why are we pushing so hard to wear seatbelts in cars and aeroplanes and not buses? Uh, That's still a very concerning thing when it comes to safety. So they're some of the main steps that have been taken immediately by that task force uh, and they're continuing to do investigations in this space. We are expecting a final report from them next year as well. Romy, there are now calls to expand this bus task force so that it's national, goes beyond New South Wales. Who's behind that push and what are they calling for? Yeah, so there's a group called Stop Bus Tragedies and that was established in the aftermath of the crash. It was really who led the charge were mainly the families and friends of those who were impacted and those who lost loved ones in that tragedy. And they have got some experts uh, to, to help them with creating this group. And as part of that, they're now calling for not only for us to have this New South Wales task force, but they actually also want a task force federally. They are saying that there's no point in us just having safety in New South Wales. We're catching buses across the country. We need this to be nationwide. So they're calling for that to be mirrored so that we can have top experts on base on bus safety in Canberra making decisions. I have spoken to the federal government. Um, the tran- federal transport minister, Catherine King, has spoken about this as well as the assistant transport minister, Carol Brown. And they say that they... In- They are very welcoming of the recommendations made by the New South Wales Bus Task Force and they're encouraging all states and territories to also adopt them. However, that's all we've really heard in terms of solid steps at this stage. So I also spoke to Adam Bray. He lost his son, Zach Bray, in the tragedy. He's been really vocal on this issue and bus safety since it happened. And here's a bit about what he had to say when it comes to this push for a federal task force. If we want to do something nationally and fix this quickly so that these sorts of horrific tragedies don't ever, ever happen again, we need the federal government to step up and not quote constitutional reasons for not doing things or any other types of excuses. But I think more importantly, we are calling for demanding, if you like, and I can be demanding because I've lost my beautiful son, so I'll demand you know, all day long. But yeah, we want a federally initiated bus coach task force to look at the submission that we've prepared, put some experts into Canberra, experts in the federal system for buses and coaches. So you can really hear the passion in his voice and he's really trying to turn his pain into taking action and uh, has been very vocal since June this year.
Romy, I understand uh, the role of technology has also been raised, that perhaps this idea that Australia's lagging behind in regards to the role that technology could play in bus safety. For sure. As part of this Stop Bus Tragedies group, they have got some experts on board to create a submission that they're putting forward to the New South Wales government. One of the authors of that submission is Anthony Ockwell. He's a road safety expert and has been working with government on it since the 1990s. And he said his research to make this submission exposed some major issues when it comes to compliance with seatbelts and the need for improved national awareness campaigns. But he also found that telematics are really lagging behind in Australia. So telematics are pretty much technologies in vehicles that assist drivers. An example, example is a tachograph. It records the speed, distance and travel times of vehicles as well as rest periods for drivers. So it really helps ensure that they're meeting the rules and that they're not fatigued. And Anthony Ockwell says that the adoption of them in Australia is really behind what they're doing overseas. We saw that technologies have been mandated in some vehicles in Europe since the mid-1980s. They were discussed at length following the tragic Brafton bus crashes in the 1980s. But I guess for the most part, issues or technologies like tachographs are still on the drawing board when it comes to adoption in Australia. So as part of that submission, they've made 18 recommendations, which they're presenting to the state government, and they're quite confident that they will um, really help work to implement them. And Romy, just finally, what traction has Adam Bray had uh, at the federal level in trying to get the federal government's attention on this and uh, perhaps expanding this task force beyond New South Wales to something that's national? He's been quite successful at the state government level. However, he doesn't feel as though he's had as much traction with the federal government. Uh, He's still really wanting them to step up and he's calling on the federal government to really take some action in this space. Ministers across both the federal and states are, are definitely listening. They are taking steps. It's just a matter of some taking steps quicker than others, I guess. Romy Stevens is our reporter in Newcastle. Romy, thanks so much for speaking to Australia Wide. Thanks, Alex. ABC Australia Wide. And you are with me, Alex Hyman. It's great to have your company. Now, they're a tiny pest, but they can take a huge toll. Yellow crazy ants have formed a stronghold in North Queensland where they're at risk of causing environmental and economic devastation. One council has launched their biggest blitz on the invasive species, tackling the insects from the ground and air. Lily Nuttling has this story. Delmar Cahoon's property has been overrun by tiny invaders. Oh yeah, lots of eggs there. I can certainly tell them from the other ants now. She's felt helpless trying to stop the yellow crazy ants from spreading across her rural block on the outskirts of Townsville. So I haven't bothered gardening, shopping. Look at my veggie patch. I'm not going in there and dig. There's too many ants. It's just crazy. Within months, they were inside her home. You'd see them crawling on the ceilings, down the walls. I'd be lying in bed. You know, oh, there's an ant, pull it off. And then we'd be sweeping them up daily, the dead ones. Yellow crazy ants are one of the world's worst invasive species. They spray formic acid to kill their prey and can form super colonies that can devastate native wildlife. We'd come home and there was always a dead smell everywhere. And it took me a while to realise it's, it's the ants. Yeah, 
that are, are just killing stuff. The insects thrive in warm climates. Bev Job from the Invasive Species Council says infestations have taken hold in Townsville, Cairns and the Whitsundays. They um, will literally wipe out ecosystems from the ground up. You'll see all your ants and insects disappear, small reptiles, ground-dwelling birds, etc. But on top of that, they're also a significant impact to things like agriculture, industry and the social and economic impact on residents as well is, is of serious concern. So far, they've spread through at least 10 Townsville suburbs. We've got nine endemic species on Mount Elliot and the yellow crazy ants down there are known to be within two kilometres of the edge of the National Park. So um, we could see extinctions if they got into the National Park down there. With your residential areas, we've, we're seeing some residents being impacted financially. The impact on the price of selling their property with the yellow crazy ants on that property has been significant. The Townsville City Council's been given $12 million of federal funding to run a four-year local eradication plan. Using helicopters and drones to access challenging terrain, a task force has begun by targeting 500 hectares of infested land. Councillor Maury Soares says it'll be the first of five baiting blitzes in the Townsville area over the next year or so. If we don't get on it now, it may no longer be an eradication potential program. It'll be just a control program. And we have parts of the world where they can't get rid of them. We don't want to be in that space. We want to be able to wipe them from our uh, uh, area completely. Each year we'll be getting uh, our supplement of that payment, right? We've already uh, employed additional staff, training's gone in, uh, and uh, the dispersal program is quite unique in itself. We're now starting to use drone technology, which wasn't available to us just a few years ago. We're also doing helicopters in uh, big areas, and if it's uh, really uh, heavily wooded terrain, we're going in with uh, hand dispersals in uh, things that look much like a blower. For residents like Delmar Cahoon, the first round of baiting is already making a difference to the number of ants around her home. Oh, thank goodness. Oh, we've been hanging out waiting and waiting and I do wish it had come a bit earlier. We live out here because of the nature, because of the wildlife and to, to know that all the smaller species are being taken over, killed, wiped out. I mean, I'm worried that they won't be able to grow back and, and it to become as biodiverse as it was. That, you know, that, that is a real big worry. Bev Job from the Invasive Species Council says a longer-term funding model is needed to safeguard communities and biodiversity into the future. So it would be nice to see the Townsville Yellow Crazy Ant program funded beyond the four years as it has been in far north Queensland, as the fire ants now are funded in, in the southeast Queensland region for a longer term to to actually finish because with invasive species you, you can't just leave a few, it's like rabbits, if you leave a few they will continue to expand so you do need to actually get on top of them and eliminate them from an environment to ensure that that happens. That's Bev Job from the Invasive Species Council ending that story by Lily Nuttling. Let's head to South Australia now. Drivers of disability access taxis in Adelaide have been getting top-up payments from the state government for decades, but now a commitment has been made to investigate extending the payments to regional operators. It's hoped that the planned extension of the $25 payment to country drivers of access taxis, each time they transport a passenger with a wheelchair, scooter or mobility device, will lead to improvements to the service in regional areas. Our reporter Ivy Code has the story. 
Angela Virgin lives in the regional city of Victor Harbour, south of Adelaide. Due to a combination of ongoing health issues caused by contracting polio as a child and old age, she now uses a mobility scooter and an access taxi to get around. She says because she lives alone, being able to get out every week is vital to her mental health. Well, can you imagine yourself being stuck at home 24-7, you know, seven days a week, all the time? It's just incredible. And when one has been used to an active, outgoing life and one has worked all their life, suddenly to cut home alone. I was widowed four years ago and the ability to socialise has been radically reduced. And without the access cab to get me out of this place, I'd be under psychiatric care, I'm, I'm sure of it. And I did work in psychiatric care for 15 years of my life, so I know what I'm talking about. While a review into access taxis is underway, the head of a transport company operating in country South Australia highlighted the difference between state government financial support for city and country drivers. Chris Browham from Des's Cabs told the ABC that drivers of access taxis in Adelaide have been getting top-up payments for decades, while his drivers and their passengers have been missing out. I would call it discrimination between metro access taxis and country access taxis, which you could interpret as meaning it's discriminating between those people who are, uh, need the service in country areas and those people who need it in the metropolitan area. There's a, a big discrimination there. Differences in services for people in regional Australia with a disability are also a concern of advocate group Purple Orange. Tessa Deke is their regional project manager based in Mount Gambier. Something that happens regularly in regional areas where we just don't have the same resourcing and that includes that that funding support um, and it means that we're always that little bit further behind in trying to make sure people are able to have access to the exact same rights and that includes the right to be able to get around whenever and however you choose. In responding to these concerns, South Australian Minister for Transport Tom Kutzentonis made a commitment to investigate the extension of these payments across the state. So we can work through those things and apply the lifting fee in regional areas. So look, this is a big announcement and this is the first time we've said so publicly, but I think it's time that regional taxi drivers got the same um, reward because they do a great service for us in regional South Australia, keeping people with disabilities in their country towns, keeping them connected. And it's important that we recognise that and help them along as well. We've got serious problems in metropolitan Adelaide and serious problems in regional towns about people being accessible and we want to try and get to the bottom of it and see what we can do to fix it. Chris Browham from Dazza's Cabs welcomed this development and hopes that more drivers will join the industry. First thing it should do is, is certainly it'll make the current drivers of the access taxis, will, will, um, that'll put a spring in their step and a smile on their face, I would think, to start off with. But longer term, what it would mean is our ability to both recruit and to retain our access drivers uh, should be a whole lot better. Port Pirie reporter Ivy Code with that story from South Australia. You're listening to ABC Australia Wide. Let's head to regional Victoria. With pick one, the West Coast Eagles select Harley Reid from the Bendigo Pioneers and the Tongala Football Netball Club. Yeah, I'm, I'm just super stoked. Um, a lot of relief and, yeah, it's just 
the privilege to have um, Nick Nat present me with the jumper was just huge and, yeah, super grateful. From the small town of Tongala, Harley Reid was favoured to be the number one AFL draft pick for 2023. And that's exactly how it played out last night, picked by the West Coast Eagles. Tongala sits between Kyabram and Echuca, has a population just under 2,000. But what it lacks in numbers, it makes up for in enthusiasm, especially when one of their own is the talk of the town. Last night, the local football and netball club installed 10 extra TVs so a packed house could watch the draft unfold. Our reporter Branson Gibson was in the Tony Club rooms. When it all went down, he spoke to Darren Maloney, the vice president of the Tongala Football Club. He was the president for the past eight years, right when Harley was playing. I was just super grateful for the people around me and all my friends and family in my local club. I've got all my job here. Over the top. Shed a tear like everyone else. Excited. He's realised his dream. How good's that? I'm just there's no words you can say it. I'm just so proud of it. What does Harley mean to the Tony community? Because everyone seems to very to be very close with him. In his speech, he made sure to shout out the club. Mm. He's a Tony boy, true and true. Mm. What does he mean to the club, and what does the club mean to him? Oh, I think he's just he's just a country kid that uh, loves the town. Um, you know, you've got to realise for the last 10 years you've been running around this footy oval, kicking goals, practising, doing things. And, uh, you know, he had this dream when he was 12, right? And he just wanted to be an AFL footballer, nothing else, right? So uh, even when we asked him what else would he like to be, you know, it was, I'm not going to be anything else, I am going to be an AFL footballer. So he was that driven at the age of 12. So, you know, when he kicked his 100 goals every year and he won best and fairest and all the rest of it, his ultimate dream was to play with these blokes down in Melbourne and he's realised the trend, but he's um, homegrown and, uh, you know, just down to earth. And uh, you can't find a more original, genuine kid at that age. He's just fantastic. He's absolutely stormed through the ranks, you know, from junior footy to senior footy to the Pios, Vic Country. And now he's going to be on the AFL stage. Is that still surreal to think that that kid you watched playing here for years and years is going to be lighting it up on the AFL stage? Uh, it's exciting. Um, yes, I, you know, me and everyone around the club knew that this is the direction he was heading in. Um, but it was all, you know, the stars have to align as well, don't they, right? So he has to play good footy, he has to perform on the big stage, he has to do all the right things. And he's done all that, he's ticked all those boxes, right? So, um, you know, I've just, like I said before, um, the club, I know his parents and everyone else can't be proud of Harley and his achievements. And, you know, don't, don't ever take away from Harley's made this happen. No one else has, but Harley's driven this and, uh, you know, hopefully he has a fantastic career. Our reporter Branson Gibson speaking there to Darren Maloney from the Tongala Football Club about their much-loved player Harley Reid being picked number one in last night's AFL draft. And finally here on Australia Wide, with high inflation pushing up the cost of living, I wonder if you've made some changes to household spending. Maybe you've noticed that your income isn't stretching as far as it used to. Perhaps you've given up on some things because of that. Red meat, fresh vegetables. What about getting a fresh haircut? Well, Mount Isa Barber, 26-year-old NLA Mayafu, is trying to change that, offering a hand to those in need. Meet the barbers that are battling the cost of living crisis with kindness and conversation. Offering free services for a haircut, it's just, you know, some people would see it as a, it's really crazy. Why would 
we offer these kind of services. You know, we have bills to pay. When 26-year-old Enele Ma'afu first moved to Mount Isa 12 months ago, he set up a side hustle as a barber. Back in Fiji, the cost of a haircut would just be around from $5 to $10. But here it's very demanding and it's very expensive. Now he's stopped accepting payment, throwing open his books every week and says the change goes deeper than a free, fresh fade. Facing depression, anxiety and all sorts of kind of you know, um, mental health, you know, offering this kind of services, you know, having that conversation over a haircut, it's more like a therapy. And he's challenging you to do the same. Yeah, it takes uh, zero dollars, zero cents to, to show love and to care for someone. Whatever do you have, uh, maybe you wouldn't be a, a baba. Maybe you, you bake, uh, you sing songs, you make people laugh, you light up the room with, you know, joy. That is something that you could share to the community. Enele Mayafu, the 26-year-old barber in Mount Isa there, and that story came from our Mount Isa team, Emily Dobson and Larissa Waterson. And that is Australia-wide for this Tuesday evening. I'm Alex Hyman. I'll be back again with you tomorrow. Thanks so much for your company. Have a wonderful evening. Cheerio. ABC Listen.